Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. This is Dr. Dan. The untimely passing of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia has thrust the Supreme Court into the forefront of this year's presidential politics. In the early years of our republic, the Supreme Court could probably have been compared to a chihuahua. Its bark was strident and annoying, and it had small teeth that could cause mild pain, but could do no real damage. With the enormous growth of the federal government, way beyond that envisioned by our founders, the Supreme Court is now most assuredly the elephant in the room. Its decisions have a major impact on property rights, the lives, and the freedom of individual citizens. To the constitutionally challenged citizen, a Supreme Court, with the awesome power to act as an arbiter of morality and social justice, is an end which justifies any and all means. To the constitutionally informed observer, however, it seems as if the Court's recent history consists of periods of relative hibernation interrupted by sudden outbursts of activity during which the justices make numerous decisions that are devoid of any semblance of constitutionality. Of course, what can you expect? If appointment to the court is based on political ideology rather than judicial honesty or constitutional wisdom, The Supreme Court, unfortunately, has become a kind of super-legislature, sort of a rich half-uncle once removed, whose justices, not directly appointed and approved by the people, nevertheless make laws, rules, and regulations that affect every aspect of our daily existence. It clearly is legislation without representation, and clearly not as originally intended. By that construct, the biggest prize for executive and legislative branch winners in this year's federal elections will be to choose enough Supreme Court justices and federal court judges to control the philosophical inclination of the nation's judicial system for several generations. My guest on Freedom Forum Radio is Robert Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute and noted constitutional scholar who successfully argued the Heller case in front of the Supreme Court. He is the author of a most fascinating book, The Dirty Dozen, 
a discussion of the 12 worst Supreme Court decisions of all time. Given some of the recent Supreme Court decisions, I suspect that uh, Robert Levy is in the process of writing a sequel. In any event, Bob Levy, welcome to Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum and Freedom Forum Radio. Good to be with you, Dan. It's a pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure to have you again, uh, and I would like to propose that we discuss some general issues. Of course, what are the obligations and authority given to the Supreme Court by the Constitution? And we can discuss what Justice Scalia's originalist philosophy means. But I would like to start off with a specific question about how the Supreme Court currently stacks up. Well, until uh, Scalia's death, death, uh, the mix was four justices who tended to be on the conservative side, four tended to be liberal, and one swing vote, Justice Kennedy, who leaned more conservative than liberal, but was unpredictable. Um, We do have, however, now the death of Justice Scalia, and we have two justices uh, that uh, by the end of this year is going to be 80 or more. That's Ruth Ginsburg and Anthony Kennedy. And we have Stephen Breyer, who's going to be 78 this year. So that's one justice whose seat does have to be filled, Justice Scalia, and three others that are very likely to be filled uh, during the next presidential term. That's two liberals, one conservative, and one swing vote uh, that will have uh, created vacancies. Um, With a Republican-controlled Senate, I think it's doubtful that uh, President Obama is going to get anybody confirmed um, before the election. The next president's appointments, however, will have a profound impact uh, on the court, probably changing the complexion of the court altogether. That means, of course, a profound impact on the nation as well. Well, there's no question that at this stage, what we are seeing is a Supreme Court that is very, very active in making law, changing laws, and interposing itself in decisions that, well, I certainly thought were legislative uh, and executive branch decisions. Uh, That's a question of philosophy and function, is it not? Indeed it is. There's, uh, There's criticism from both the left and the right that the court uh, tends to be, uh, the term is judicially active. I think, uh, from my own perspective, that's a misused term. Uh, The court has an obligation uh, to bind the legislative and executive branches with the chains of the Constitution. So we want the court to be judicially active in the best sense of that term, that is to say, engaged whenever the legislative or the executive does something that's unconstitutional, the court can and should intervene to put a stop to it. And whenever the executive or the legislative fails to protect and secure rights that are uh, guaranteed by the Constitution, the judiciary has an obligation to step in and make sure that those rights are secured. What we don't want happening is what you suggested in your question, and that is the justices on the court deciding that they are quasi-legislators and effectively filling the role of the legislature 
by passing laws that happen to be congenial to their own uh, political viewpoints rather than an attempt to force the legislature and the executive to comply with the dictates of the Constitution. Well, you know, what we've we've kind of seen is, in many ways, uh, the Supreme Court has become like a super legislative body. you know, it, it's it's making decisions. It seems, you know, that uh, these are people, the Supreme Court justices are not directly appointed by the people, and yet when they uh, do what really we would consider a legislative act, it's sort of like legislation without representation, wouldn't you think? Indeed, but again, there are occasions when we definitely want the court to uh, get involved in overturning what the legislature have done. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, the Heller case, for one. Uh, the legislature in Washington, D.C. decided there was going to be an outright gun ban. This, it took the Supreme Court to step in and say, no, there's not. Uh, in Illinois, uh, the legislature there decided that the, the city of Chicago could ban guns. It took the Supreme Court in a case called McDonald to say, no, the city can't do that. Uh, in uh, the Citizens United case, um, the legislature, in this case the U.S. Congress, uh, passed the uh, Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, which says that speech is to be muddled uh, when directed at uh, electing or defeating uh, federal candidates. The Citizens United case said, no, you can't do that. Uh, the state of Texas uh, told uh, Mr. Lawrence that he couldn't engage in, in uh, gay sex in the privacy of his own homes with a consenting adult. And it took the Supreme Court to to say, uh, no, Texas is wrong in that regard. So there, there are a lot of instances when we definitely want uh, the court to intervene and overturn what it is that the legislature have done, because the primary obligation of the court is to uphold the Constitution. And that occasionally is uh, something that the legislature uh, seems to forget. You know, that's an interesting point, is what is constitutional? I mean, that seems to be at the heart of the matters at what we're discussing here. There's a judicial philosophy in play here. What kind of what judicial philosophy should be we really be looking for in a justice? Well, the, the two most prominent theories that you uh, hear about are textualism, which is favored by conservatives on the court, and the so-called living constitution, favored by liberals on the court. Uh, I think, unfortunately, the media is consistently misinforming the public about uh, conservative judicial philosophy in particular. So you'll hear over and over again that uh, conservatives believe in original intent. Now, strictly speaking, that's not what textualism is all about. Scalia was, and Thomas is, and Alito is, textualist. Those justices rely not on the original intent of the framers, but on the original meaning of the words that are in the document. A judge should attach primary importance to the words actually in the Constitution. And Scalia summed it up uh, quite uh, succinctly. He said, it's the law that governs and not the intent of the lawgiver. Now, it is true that textualists interpret the Constitution in accordance with its meaning, 
when the underlying provisions were originally ratified, not the meaning uh, that's derived from a modern reading of the text. But original meaning, which is the same as textualism, is not synonymous with original intent. Meaning focuses on the words. Intent focuses on the values and the objectives of the drafters and the ratifiers. And the problem with applying intent, if you wanted to do so, is that, for example, we don't know which drafters or ratifiers are authoritative. Uh, The only records we have from the Constitutional Convention are those of Madison. Nobody else's records have been recorded. Uh, How do we uh, reconcile differing views among, for example, Madison and Hamilton, who disagreed about quite a number of constitutional uh, provisions? So the original intent is a very difficult thing to apply. What we do have is an anchor, namely the words that are actually uh, in the document. And that's what textualism or original meaning is all about. You know, I understand very well what you're saying there, of course, um, and uh, which, is, which, which is important. But, you know, you look back, this is a document that was written 230 years ago. There are a lot of words that meant different things back then than they do now which, and I've heard you say in the past, that you need to read the Constitution uh, with a dictionary that was written at the time, or a dictionary of what words meant at that time. Uh, So isn't that what you're talking about? Well, um, again, I think we ought to listen to what Scalia had to say about that Um, in terms of whether or not words should be interpreted strictly or loosely. He said... I'm not a strict constructionist. Nobody ought to be. The text shouldn't be construed strictly. It shouldn't be construed loosely. It should be construed reasonably uh, to contain all that it fairly means. So, as you suggest, uh, if we wanted to interpret a uh, 1789 Constitution, uh, the best tool that we might avail ourselves of is a contemporaneous dictionary, one that was available in 1789, and that dictionary would define the words uh, not strictly and not loosely, but in accordance uh, with their actual meaning uh, at the time. Well, you know, if you read, if you study the Constitution, and if you read the minutes of the ratifying conventions in the individual states, you get a flavor that there were some really, some very definite uh, beliefs at that time of what people wanted their country to look like. I mean, we know they wanted an extremely limited federal government. They said, okay, we recognize that there are some things that we need to do for our own common good, and there are 18 of them, and here they are in Article 1, Section 8. Uh, And in those ratifying conventions in the states, things got pretty hot and heavy, didn't they? Because people did not want a monarch of any kind ever again. So, Words that were written, if we understand their meaning from that time, they can be kind of textured in our minds, can they not, by what we know the people of that time really wanted? Absolutely. Uh, We can uh, look to the meaning of the words at the time they were ratified. Now, some critics say, well, when you do that, it locks the Constitution into a 1789 uh, time warp. Uh, That is not the case. Uh, you will not find any textualist, certainly I don't know of any textualist, 
who doesn't think that the First Amendment protection for free speech extends to the Internet. Now, the framers could never have imagined uh, that we'd have any such thing as an Internet. Uh, and yet, there's no doubt that the First Amendment applies to the Internet. So it's always permissible to look at the words that were originally ratified and examine the trajectory of those words and apply those words to modern uh, concepts and modern conditions. But what is not permissible and what is frequently done, mostly by the liberals on the court, is to take the words that were ratified originally and interpret them today to mean something that quite clearly they did not mean at the time. Well, you know, that what you're talking about is really that the Constitution is based on principle. There are very basic principles. Among the probably the most important to my reading is that property or private property rights are absolutely key to what uh, everyone felt at the time. And you know that to the people of that time, to the framers of the Constitution, your property consisted of your land and your home, your possessions, the work of your hands, the ideas of your brain, and your life itself. That was the totality of a person's private property, and they wrote a document, the Constitution, to protect that, those rights which they, they felt were so critical to individual freedom. That's what individual freedom is. That private property rights is synonymous with individual freedom. Absolutely, and of course that all stems from uh, the precursor to the Constitution, and that is uh, the Declaration. And there, Jefferson uh, set out that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, and then the important sentence in the Declaration is, to secure these rights, um, notice he didn't say to grant these rights. He said to secure the rights. So we already had them. Um, to secure these rights, Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. So we're all created equal, which means no one has any rights superior to anybody else's. Uh, furthermore, we're born with those rights. We don't get them from government. Indeed, whatever powers government has comes from us, from the consent of the governed. So our rights to life and liberty and property and the pursuit of happiness, uh, those rights imply the, li the right to live our lives as we wish, uh, provided only that we respect the right of others to do uh, the same thing. And that, I think, is a very libertarian principle. It's fair to say that the founders were libertarians. And that proclamation by Jefferson uh, in the Declaration uh, was the foundation for the follow-on document, the U.S. Constitution, which provided for uh, securing these individual rights to life, liberty, property, the pursuit of happiness, to doing so with a limited government, and that government that would be bound by certain checks, including two that are most important, namely federalism, and that is the division of power between the state and federal government so that neither of them exercises more power than is healthy for a free nation, and secondly, the separation of powers between the three branches of government, the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary, in order for each of them to provide a check against the other. Quite an ingenious scheme. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website 
www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Thank <laughs> you. 